Let me invite you to open your Bibles with me to Isaiah 53. That's where we'll be spending our time this morning. Central family, I got some good news today. He is risen. And we're coming to this text because Isaiah told us hundreds, hundreds of years before Jesus came that a suffering servant would come who would rescue sinners and who would be raised to walk in newness of life. And today we're not just going to hear the gospel preached, but we're going to taste the gospel in the Lord's Supper. After this message, we'll be inviting you to the Lord's table. And even now, I want to encourage you to be preparing your heart. We've been working our way through the Old Testament, looking at ways that the Old Testament anticipated the story of Easter. And if you remember last week in Zechariah 9, we saw the way that it expected a future king. And what we're going to notice this morning in Isaiah 53 is the way that the prophet anticipates a future suffering servant who secures salvation. Now there's a danger here in a moment like this that we can be affected by the familiarity of Easter. We've heard this story before. It doesn't seem fresh. It doesn't seem real. It may not land on us. But what I want you to notice is that when Isaiah speaks these words, hundreds of years before Christ you can sense the anticipation. You can taste the excitement. Follow along with me here in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you on this Easter Sunday, we are coming with open hearts to see the open tomb. We want to be changed by Jesus. So I pray now in this moment that the cares of life fade away and that your spirit works in our hearts to reshape us more and more into the image of your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. But what a difference a year makes. I mean, this time last year at Easter, none of us were gathered together. We had to open up some of the extra rows in here to fit everybody in in the 930, and I'm glad that we had the second service because it would have been a tough time to fit everybody in here together, but things felt so much different last year, didn't it? I mean, Easter Sunday was the last Sunday before I began to preach here at Central, and I remember what it was like, don't you? Instead of hunting for Easter eggs, most of us were hunting for toilet paper. And instead of loading up to head across town to go to Granny's house for Easter brunch after church service, we were warming lukewarm leftovers from a restaurant that hadn't quite perfected its takeout strategy. Or you can even think about uh, the reality that we were not able to be here in person. Rather than gathering together, wearing your matching pastels and setting up somewhere to capture that perfect picture for social media, we were sitting at home watching live streams, some of us in our pajamas. It's just a different situation today than it was last year. And that's not just true here in the Brazos Valley. That's true around the world. One of the things I have enjoyed the most in my life was a chance to go visit the Holy Land in Israel several years ago. 
And that's one of the reasons I'm excited that Tim and Jamie Skaggs are leading a group from our church in October to go on a Holy Land tour. Because one of the places that you'll see if you go in October is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This is the place where tradition tells you that Jesus was, uh, was buried after his death. And it's that tomb that he returned from the grave from. And even there, things were different last year. Because for the first time since the 1300s, the doors of that church were locked. No one was allowed to enter. That had never happened since the Black Plague had struck Israel in the 1300s. And that task was left to a Middle Eastern family who had been given the keys to the church generations and generations ago and were tasked with the locking of those doors. But what we'll notice with Isaiah 53 this morning is that the prophet is telling us that the keys of the kingdom do not reside in a Middle Eastern family, but in a suffering servant. A king who would come and through his sacrifice would set us free from our sins. And think about what's what is happening here in this text. As Isaiah writes, hundreds of years before Jesus comes, it is before Israel has gone into exile. And at the end of this book, he offers four instances where he speaks about this coming servant. This is the pinnacle of it. Isaiah 53 is quoted seven times in the New Testament. There are over an additional 30 allusions and references to it in our New Testament. And the heart of what Isaiah is driving at today is he's calling us to be Easter people in a Good Friday world. That's the picture that we have laid out for us here in the text. And this is the way that the Apostle John speaks about it when he is writing in John 12, 41. Jesus references this passage in Isaiah, and John has this to say. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And what we're going to notice as we look at the text this morning is that Easter tells us the story of how the suffering servant secures salvation. And we're going to notice the way that that story begins back in verses 1 through 4 that we've already read when we see how Easter reveals the depths of our sin. See, the story of Easter doesn't begin in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus is praying to the Father, preparing to taste of the bitter cup of judgment. Instead, Easter begins in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve are preparing themselves to taste of forbidden fruit. And from that moment onward, when sin enters into this world, that starts us on the journey towards the resurrection. And what we'll notice here is that the way Isaiah speaks of things is he shows us first the depth of our sin to see our need of salvation at Easter. And look at the way he talks about it there. He shows us in verse 1 that our sin is rooted in a lack of faith. That's why he begins with this question, who has believed what he has heard from us? In other words, Isaiah is reminding us that the fundamental question for each one of us this morning is, do we believe this message? In other words, the issue with our sin is not the wrongs we've done. It's not the mistakes we made. He says the issue is not our lack of obedience, it's our lack of faith. That, that unbelief, that doubt, 
that rejection of God leads to our rebellion against God. He speaks there of a lack of faith that overflows, as we'll notice in verses 2 and 3, in hearts that are hard towards God. So he speaks about this suffering servant who's to come as a root, as a branch, as one who shoots up from dry ground. But look back at verses 2 and 3, at the way that people react to that. Verse 3 tells us he was despised and rejected by men. There is a rebellion against the Messiah that comes from those whose hearts are hard towards the things of God. They don't recognize what God is doing. And don't we see that even in the crucifixion story of Jesus? I mean, remember these words from Luke 23, 11, where the gospel describes it this way. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in a splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. They miss the moment because of the hardness of their hearts. When they see the outstretched arms of Jesus on the cross, they miss the arm of the Lord. When they see a forgettable crucifixion happening on the cross, they miss the unforgettable sacrifice that Jesus was making. When they see his suffering, they don't recognize that he is suffering in our place. One of the things we've loved about being in Texas is getting to reconnect with a place that's always felt like home. But there's one thing that I haven't particularly enjoyed since we've been back, and that's the changing of the seasons here. You know how it goes. We had that mild winter that hits, and then we've just entered into this new season. And some of you think it's spring, and that's not correct. It's not even March Madness season or spring practice season for Aggie football. The only way to determine, to term this season right now is pollen season. You know what I'm talking about? When you walk out to your car every day after sleeping or after work or after school, when you look at it, it's just caked in a new layer of that pollen. It's saturated. It's covered. There's nothing you can do to escape it. It doesn't matter how many times you try to wash it off. What you try to do to cleanse it, it just keeps coming back. It's relentless. There's nothing we can do on our own to stop it. And what Isaiah is reminding us of here is we find ourselves in the same reality on a spiritual level. There's nothing we can do to wash away our sin. There's no way that we can cleanse ourselves because of our hardness of heart. And what happens as a result of that is it leads as verse 4 shows us, to broken lives. So notice the way he speaks of it there in verse 4, that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Isaiah is reminding us that a life in a broken world is filled with grief after grief, sorrow after sorrow. Perhaps that's nowhere more true than during this past year in this pandemic. I imagine that there are some of you in the room or watching online who've experienced economic devastation. You don't know how you're going to make it. That job ran out. Those clients backed out of the contract. Things changed, and that grief and sorrow has gripped you. For the others of you, you've experienced a spiritual devastation. You were walking well with the Lord, but in this season of isolation, you have found yourself walking away from him perhaps trapped in addiction, and maybe you showed up this morning or you're tuned in online hoping that maybe this can be the spark that brings you back to God. For others of you, perhaps it's an emotional devastation. 
that as you're sitting on your couch at home or you're sitting here in the seats in our worship center, you've got an empty seat next to you for the first time on Easter since you lost that loved one. What Isaiah is reminding us of is the reality that in the midst of the brokenness of this fallen world, that there is a servant who will come that will bring comfort to his people. He will bear our griefs. He will share in our sorrows. And what that means for us is that Jesus can take the griefs that we can't grip, the sorrows that we can't shoulder, the, the sins that we can't surmount, and he will take them in our place. And in fact, that's what Isaiah goes on to speak about in the second part of this passage, where you'll notice in verses 5 through 9, we see him now declaring second that Easter reveals the source of our salvation. So let's see how he talks about it there. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a, a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in him. So see what's happening here. Isaiah shows us that Easter doesn't just reveal the depths of our sin, but the source of our salvation. After Isaiah speaks of our rejection of the Messiah, he now begins to speak about our redemption through the Messiah. And as he does that, what he's going to show us is that Jesus is the source of our salvation because he meets the two biggest spiritual needs that all of us have. And you'll see the first one there in verses 5 and 6. We see the way that Easter meets our need for a substitute who can take our place. That's the picture that Isaiah gives us. And why is it that we need a substitute to take our place? Well, look at verse 5 and 6 again. It, he speaks there about our transgressions, our iniquities. Verse 6, he uses this image that we are like sheep who have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way. We are all rebels running from God. You know, it's not every day that a sheep makes international headlines, but that's what took place just a few months ago down in Australia. There was a sheep that got it separated from its herd and was on its own for an extended period of time, and then some people happened upon it and were able to rescue it. And you know how things work with the sheep. They grow their hair, and after a few months, it needs to be sheared in order to care for them, in order for them to function. And by the time these people located this sheep, it looked like this picture on the screen. Check out what this sheep looked like. After five to seven years of being on its own, being lost, seeking its own way, being separated from those that care for it, it had grown 77 pounds of additional wool. 
In fact, the people that rescued it said it was near death. And the reason for it was, get this, it was so burdened by the weight of what it was carrying that it almost couldn't sustain its life. And if it wasn't rescued, if it wasn't set free from that weight, it would not have made it much longer. And what Isaiah is showing us here is that in a very real sense, we find ourselves there spiritually apart from Jesus. That we are sheep who are led astray. We are lost. We are seeking after our own way. And the weight of sin is a burden too much for us to bear. It is a burden leading to death. But in the midst of that reality, what we find here is that verses 5 and 6 tell us of the way that in that moment, God meets us with a Savior. A Savior who is a substitute. And how does Isaiah speak about the nature of this Savior? Look back in verses 5 and 6. He tells us that he's pierced, that he's crushed, that the Lord has laid the iniquity of him on us all. And isn't that exactly what we see happening at the crucifixion? You see, a crucifixion is one of the most gruesome ways for anyone to die. The way that you end up losing your life is not because your hands and feet are stapled to a cross with iron nails that would cause you to lose enough blood in order to pass away. No, no, no. The way that you die is through suffocation. You see, what happens is you're nailed to that cross. In order to get air into your lungs, you have to force yourself upward to take a breath before you slump back down. And over a period of time, that exhaustion sets in. The energy is gone where you can no longer lift your body for that breath of life. And what happens is you are crushed by your own weight. Your lungs are crushed. And you remember that's what happens to Jesus. And then right as he is crushed, a soldier comes and pierces his side with that Roman spear. He is crushed. He is pierced. And upon his head as he lays there motionless, what do we see? A crown of thorns. Symbolizing the curse of sin that has been laid upon him. Jesus is crushed. He is pierced. The iniquity of us all is laid on him. That's what happens through his substitution. That he takes our place. That should be us that is there on the cross because we have walked away from God in our sin. And yet there is a great exchange that Isaiah speaks of. That God takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. That Jesus takes our punishment and he gives us his perfection Jesus is our substitute who secures our salvation. But the other need that Isaiah tells us that he meets, you'll see it there in verses 7 through 9. He shows us of the way that Easter meets our need for a sacrifice to pay our debts. So notice the sacrificial language he begins to use there. Starting in verse 7, he speaks about the servant uh, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. But we know there's a difference here. We see in the Old Testament imagery these animals who are led to the sacrifice, and there is a silence there because they are naive as to what is to come. But the silence that Jesus displays in going to the cross is not one of naivete, that he doesn't realize what's happening. It's a silence of submission, that he is willing to go to the cross to follow the will of God 
to be a sacrifice for you and for me. That's why Isaiah speaks here in these words that give us this image that the good shepherd becomes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world so that he might rescue lost sheep. That's precisely why when Philip is on the road in Acts 8 and he comes upon this Ethiopian eunuch who is reading this exact passage from Isaiah, we hear this in Acts 8.35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. You see, the sacrifice of Christ is the foundation for the good news of the gospel. And that's why Isaiah continues to speak about it in verse 8 when he shows us that this sacrifice of the servant even leads to death. Do you see how he says it there in verse 8? He was cut off out of the land of the living. And why is he cut off? Look at the end of the verse. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. In other words, Jesus takes our place in order to pay our debt. And as he goes to his death, notice why it is that he's even qualified to be the sacrifice for our sins. That's what verse 9 speaks about at the end of the passage. It tells us that he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This was a sinless sacrifice and that fulfills the imagery of the Old Testament sacrificial system where the animals who would be sacrificed on behalf of the people must be spotless and without blemish. Jesus is that sinless sacrifice, the one who is spotless and without blemish, the one true God living a sinless life on our behalf. And what we have happening here in Isaiah 53 is that the prophet is picking up on imagery that everyone who listened would understood because it comes from Leviticus 16 in the way that it speaks about the Day of Atonement. You remember the Day of Atonement? The instructions to the nation of Israel were given such that the high priest once a year would make a sacrifice for sin on behalf of the people to make atonement that they might be made right with God again. And in order for that reality to happen, it required two animals. You needed a substitute and a sacrifice. So one of those animals was the substitute, often known as the scapegoat. And before the sacrifice was made, the high priest would come to that animal. He would place his hands upon their head. And in that moment, symbolically, it was as if he was transferring the sin of the people upon this animal that they might bear that sin. That animal was then sent outside the camp into the wilderness, carrying the weight of sin as a substitute. Now the second animal wasn't a substitute, he was a sacrifice. He would take that animal into the Holy of Holies, it would be sacrificed, and the blood that was shed would be placed on the altar in the Holy of Holies, and when that blood was applied, Forgiveness of sins was made. The sacrifice paid the debt that the people of God deserved to pay in their place. And what Isaiah is showing us when he speaks here of a substitute who is a sacrifice is that Jesus does the same thing for you and I at Easter. He makes a way for us in salvation. He's the substitute that takes our place. He's the sacrifice that pays our debt. And what that means for us is that if we've experienced salvation 
in Christ, what's true of him is now true of us. We've moved from death to life, from darkness to light, from sin to salvation, from judgment to joy. And the reason that's true, Isaiah tells us, is because of the victory that he begins to unpack in the last portion of this passage. And when we look at verses 10 through 12, we're going to see the third reality here, that Easter reveals the hope of a victory. So notice with me how this text ends. Here's how, it, how Isaiah says it. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So notice what Isaiah is saying here. He's saying that the sacrifice of Christ is not the end of the story. That his rejection now gives way to his resurrection. His humiliation gives way to exaltation. And when you look at these verses, you're not going to see the term resurrection used. But the imagery that the prophet employs gives us a picture of life after death. That the future has now come into the presence that there's an invasion of this kingdom by a new creation kingdom that takes place. And that reality fuels us with the hope of the resurrection. So as verse 10 tells us, as Jesus fulfills God's will by going to the cross, that's when the future invades the present through the resurrection in a way that brings us hope. And we see a glimpse of that resurrection right there in verse 10 in the middle of it when it says, he shall see his offspring." He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Isaiah knows the reality that dead men can't see. And yet this one that has gone to the grave for you and me, he now describes as being able to see his offspring, to see the work of the Lord prosper, to see these things taking place. How is that true? Well, what we find in the New Testament is that the crucifixion isn't the end of the story. That three days later, Christ ascends from the grave, defeating Satan, sin, and death, and that fills us with a hope in his resurrection. And that hope of resurrection, verse 11 shows us, is rooted in the gift of justification. So look at the way he says it there, verse 11. He sees and is satisfied. In other words, the prophet is saying that what he sees will satisfy him. Don't, don't miss this moment. Just imagine those circumstances. When Christ dies, he is placed in the tomb. The stone is rolled in front of it. It is sealed. And in the darkness there, his lifeless body lays. And then, on Sunday morning, the work of the Spirit begins. A lifeless heart begins to pump. An arm begins to twitch. Lungs heave as they inhale a first breath. And as the prophet speaks here, an eye is open that begins to see. 
And he tells us it sees and it's satisfied. Why, why is there satisfaction there for this servant? Look back at verse 11. He tells us exactly why. He says, the righteous one, my servant, makes many to be accounted righteous. What the prophet is describing here is the gift of salvation. What happens in what is often called our justification. And in this language, it is giving us courtroom imagery. Where we stand before the judge condemned. We are guilty of trespassing against the law. We are worthy of the greatest punishment, even that of death. And yet God, through the sending of his son as a substitute and as a sacrifice, has paid the debt we owe so that we stand in that courtroom and that judge declares us innocent, not guilty. Your debt has been paid in full so that when God sees you, he doesn't see you in your sin. He sees you in Christ's righteousness. That the crimson red of your sin has been washed whiter than snow. And Isaiah speaks here of that justification and the way that it gives hope of the coming victory that will be fulfilled in the Messiah. That's why this text finishes in verse 12 by speaking of the great reversal of the resurrection. This one who's a suffering servant, the one who appears to have failed, to have lost, to have been defeated, he now conquers the grave, he destroys death, he defeats sin, and as we look back at verse 12, in his victory, he gives gifts to his people. That's why it says there, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Christ gives a victory gift to his people who put their trust in him. And lest we wonder, Jesus knows exactly what he is doing when he heads to the cross. That's why, according to Luke twenty-two thirty-seven, just before Judas betrays him, he has this to say about Isaiah 53, 12. He says, for I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for it was written about me, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus knew when he turned his face to the cross that death was in his future, but life after death was where he was headed. And with that reality, he gives us a victory that fills us with hope as we live as Easter people in a Good Friday world. And that brings us full circle to where this passage began. Remember that first question back in verse 1? Take a look at it with me. When the prophet asks us all this morning, who has believed our report? And we gather here at Easter. We hear this familiar story retold. But what Isaiah is confronting each one of us this morning with is a question. Have you believed this report? Have you not just seen Jesus, but savored him in salvation? That's what the prophet is calling us to today. And yes, this Easter may be different than last Easter. I hope that this year you were able to hunt Easter eggs instead of toilet paper. I hope instead of enjoying those lukewarm leftovers, you actually get to go to your grandmother's house and enjoy that brunch when we're done. I hope that y'all were able to wear your matching pastels and capture that picture. One of the things that's happening around the world is that Church of the Holy Sepulchre back in Israel is unlocked today. 
It's reopened. And guess what? The tomb is still empty. You know, last year it was locked up. That tomb was guarded because of a threat from the outside with this unseen coronavirus pandemic growing all around the world. But think about it on that first Sunday. That tomb was also protected, but for a different reason. The stone was rolled in front of it. It was sealed to secure it. And there were Roman soldiers that were placed in front of it in order to guard it. Why? But what they thought is they were protecting the tomb from a threat on the outside. But what they didn't realize, that Easter Sunday was coming when that Savior would arise and the threat to them would come from the inside. That there would be a victory that comes through Christ that would defeat all of the empires of this world. That would overcome all the weight of sin. And secure for us a salvation through a suffering servant. That's why it's so fitting that we come to the tables this morning to celebrate the Lord's Supper on Easter. That we don't just hear the gospel proclaimed, we taste and see that the Lord is good. And in just a moment after we pray, we'll enter into our response time. And I want to invite you to the tables. If you know Jesus, if you're walking with him as a baptized believer, this is a family meal for you where we celebrate that broken body and shed blood. And as we sing, I want to encourage you to make your way to the tables to grab your elements, bring them back to your seats, and to reflect on these realities. And as we prepare our hearts, I want you to hear these words. These come from Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 and 28, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let's pray together. Father, we're rejoicing this morning that the empty tomb is still empty that your son is still seated at your right hand. And so this morning, Lord, we don't just fix our eyes on the cross, but on the crown. We don't just fix our eyes on the tomb, but on the throne of heaven, where our Savior, this suffering servant, is now marked out as a victorious king. And I pray as we go forward from here, God, that you would equip us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, not leaving this Easter story behind, but living as Easter people in this broken world where we find ourselves. And as we turn our hearts to the table, God, may you seal these realities in our lives as we partake of your broken body and shed blood. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand and respond as the Lord leads us. And as we do that, we'll sing. We'll invite you to the table. But I also want you to know we'll have ministers here in the front who would love to talk to you about taking the next step with Jesus. Maybe you want to respond to him in salvation or to step into membership of the church, or you just need someone to pray with you during this Easter time period. In whatever way the Spirit is working in your life, let's stand now and respond as God leads us.